Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Louise Welsh on her new novel, The Second Cut. Louise Welsh is an award-winning author of eight novels. The Cutting Room, her debut novel, won the Crime Writers Association, John Greasy Dagger, and the Saltire First Book of the Year Award. In 2018, she was named the most inspiring Saltire First Book Award winner by Public Vote. And she's Professor of Creative Writing at the University of Glasgow. And today, we're going to be talking about Louise's latest book, which is The Second Cut. Louise, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much. I've been looking forward to this. What I haven't said is, although obviously there's been many books in between The Cutting Room and this one, 20 years have passed and this is a basically a sequel to The Cutting Room, or a, not, not necessarily a sequel, but a, a continuation with the characters from The Cutting Room. So let's talk about, first of all, why now after 20 years? Why revisit it now? Yeah, well, I've been, you know, the, the Cutting Room was a book that completely changed my life. You know, it was a very fortunate book for me it got a lot of attention and a lot of readers and uh it's a book that means a lot to me and I think it it means a lot to to some other people as well and I think basically I just didn't want to do anything that wasn't really very good you know I think it might sound uh it sounds corny but uh when you're writing a book you have to really inhabit it and you've got to want to do it with your heart as well as with your head but I think there were concrete reasons why it seemed like a good idea now. And you mentioned the popular vote <laughs> for, for the, the Saltire Best First Winner of, uh, of the last 30 years. And that, that sort of really just gave me this nice, warm feeling. I thought, gosh, people are still reading this book. They're still enjoying it. And I was thinking about the world, but also the world has changed. And The Cutting Room was... Uh, a book that was written with a great deal of anger, actually. It was humour and anger, and these things are both energies. But it was written, as you said, 20 years ago. It was written during the Keep the Claws campaign. Um, it's a, a, a book that's based in a LGBTQ plus Glasgow. And 20 years ago, that was quite a different thing from what it is now. And we had this uh, Keep the Claws campaign, which was to keep uh, Section 28, Clause 28. And that, of course was uh, a diktat 
which meant that um, schools, places of learning were not allowed to so-called promote homosexuality. And this led to a, a lot of misery, a lot of bullying, a lot of disinformation, a lot of ignorance. Um, increased homophobia. Uh, and as I went around, you know, as I was writing this book, all around Glasgow, all around Scotland, there were these massive, massive billboards, huge billboards that would say things like, uh, I'm a parent and this is why I want to keep the claws. So making direct links between being LGBTQ plus and uh, pedophilia. So I guess I thought the, wor- the world has changed now. We still cannot be... Uh, complacent there's still homophobia about but it's a really different place you know we can have equal weddings we have recourse to hate laws we do have things like uh, I don't know if you have this but there's the the tie campaign in schools where children wear different badges on their ties to show that they're LGBTQ plus you know the world is a very very different place and uh, I thought it would be interesting for me to see how Rilke is negotiating that world, the central character in my my book. And I should say, it's a weird thing that you can do with time in books. So although it's 20 years on and he has a consciousness of uh, (laughs) the last 20 years, he hasn't aged. And this is also true of me. So remind us who Rilke is then. So Rilke uh, Rilke is the central protagonist of this book and it's written in his voice. And he's a, a Glaswegian auctioneer um, and he's a gay man, very comfortable with his sexuality. It's a great joy to write Rilke because he's a character who uh, is his business to know what things are made of. And it's his business to know the provenance of things, to know where things come from. So legitimately within this book, I can mention the, the fabric of the world and that's something that I really enjoy doing because uh, I used to be a, a secondhand bookseller, and uh, you know some of the some of the places that Roka goes, they're also places that I I know well. That must mean that uh, a lot of the a lot of the sort of characters that inhabit Roka's world, um, the likes of Jojo, who is the, you know one of the important characters in here, um, are presumably sort of drawn from characters that you would have known from your secondhand book dealing days as well. <laughs> It's weird the way that you uh, you construct characters. It's kind of strange, isn't it? And I guess it's never a direct lift. You know, you never... Uh, it's more like a mode of dress. You might take the, the way somebody dresses. You might think, oh, that's... You know, I really love what he's he or she's wearing. Uh, the way people talk, the movement. Um, so Jojo... Jojo's an interesting guy. He's a chaotic guy. He's, uh, he's what we call a runner and uh, that would be somebody who doesn't have a shop. They don't have a premises. Uh, they might these days have an internet site. But basically, they make a living from going around, going to auctions, going to shops, going to antique shops, charity shops. And their job is to look for what we call sleepers. So a sleeper is something that is priced below its value. And so as a, a runner, you have to have a great deal of knowledge. You have to have a good eye. And you also have to have the knowledge of the things, but the knowledge of uh, where you can sell it on to because your margins might be slightly tight. Uh, so basically you go around, you see a chair or a table or a lamp or a book and you think, gosh, I could make 20% on that if I take it to so-and-so on the other side of town. And that's what Jojo's job is. But uh, Jojo's got himself into some bad habits, really. And he's uh, 
involved with uh, the GHB scene. He's taking uh, lots of party recreational stuff. And when I say bad habits, I don't mean in a judgy way. I mean, Jojo's just not up for this. You know, he's he's getting too old for it. And uh, that kind of party hearty, it takes a... It takes its toll on your body and you need to know how to pace yourself. But Jojo doesn't quite know how to pace himself. And so when Rilke meets him, he's not looking his best. I wanted to say something about what you said about Rilke not ageing across the uh, the course of the book. So I've been doing this podcast for 17 years now and, wow. and that seems like a lifetime. So I read The Cutting Room before I even started this podcast. It seems impossibly a long time ago <laughs> when I did that. And and I can remember reading it and reading about this character who seemed to be, you know, a, a, an unbelievably older man. Um, yes. Now I read it and he is my age. And that's that is rather a, um, I must admit, that it's, was rather a, a shocking thing it's to read. strange, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we, we're, we're still, you know, we've still got our style. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to age him 20 years because it would be too old, uh, which so I'm not even sure why I chose that age. I just felt that that was the age that he was. And I wanted somebody with knowledge about the world and who'd had time to gather uh, a great deal of knowledge about his profession as well. So I wanted someone that had uh, strong roots within the city and he can traverse the city. You know, and it's that uh, uh, flaneur, I suppose, that uh, idea of the the detective character, the person on the quest, and he has to know aspects of the city so I did want to give him that hinterland but yeah he seemed old to me then and not so old now <laughs> and I wanted to you'd say something about um remind us who they both rose his his boss at the auction room and uh, Anderson the detective who's a an old school friend of Rilke's and now at this point in this book the romantic interest of Rose remind us again who these two are so Rose I love writing Rose because Rose, Rose can wear fantastic she wears fantastic clothes and she's based a little bit on my granny as well. <laughs> so Rose is, as you said, Rilke's uh, boss at the auction house. Uh, she inherited the auctions from her father. She's also very, very competent. You know, she's really good at what she does. She's really good in the, the world of auctions. Yeah, she she likes to have a good time as well. And I, I think part of the reason I like writing about these characters is they they have some energy, you know, and you know that they like to go out and they like to have a good time. And there's a point where uh, Rose is saying, you know, about Jojo, well, you know, he liked his drugs. And then he, she says, well, we like our drugs. <laughs> so there's not that judgmental aspect there. But at the same time, she works, uh, she works very hard for her living. And I guess, you know, that kind of world, the world of antiques, the secondhand world, you have to work really hard for the money that you get. Anderson, as you said, is an old school friend of uh, Rilke's, but it's not the uh, it's not the kind of old school friend that our prime minister has. You know, it's not uh, it's not the <laughs> it's not the private school. It's just uh, you know they went to the same school. They've known each other a very long time, and they're kind of uneasy allies. You know, Anderson is a chief inspector, and you know. He's caught Rilke for a few things uh, in the old days and let him off as well. 
So, yeah, so there's the, a little uneasy alliance, but uh, those friendships are quite nice to write as well. And as you say, he and Rose met in book one, and they've got this on-off relationship going. And tell us what it was like for you to, to revisit these characters after 20 years. You know, I, I worried about it. I worried what it would be like. And I decided that I would sit down and I, I'd read The Cutting Room and I'd, you know, I'd do that. And then I, I took out the book and I just couldn't bring myself to do it. I couldn't, I found I didn't want to go back and read it because it exists in a way in my head. And I also worried that I would then start to ventriloquize, you know, and I thought, Either you can write it, either you can get back in that world or you can't get back into the world. And so I just wrote I just wrote it cold. I just, uh, you know, when you go to the swimming baths and you think, oh, the water is going to be cold. And then you jump in <laughs> and it heats up and you're fine. It was like that. You know, I just decided, uh, I thought about it and then I just went in and did it. And I, I wanted to start, it helped that I had, uh, I had the first location very strongly in my mind I wanted to start with that image of an equal wedding you know a couple getting married and that's a, it opens up with Rilke at the uh, wedding of two collectors guys that collect art and who often come to the auction house and they've invited Rilke to their wedding which is in the, the Glasgow Art Club which is a very nice place to have a, a function <laughs> and uh, I wanted to start with that image because I wanted to start with something that was uh, acknowledging that change in the atmosphere for LGBTQ plus people but also you know I think there's still some uh, confusion with some people some people still see the idea of being queer as being entirely sexual you know it's all about sex and, uh, you know, I'm here to tell you it's not all about sex, it's about lots of other things too. And I wanted that uh, that image of a long and enduring relationship being celebrated because Rilke himself is not a, an individual that's going to have that kind of relationship. He's not interested in that. So I wanted, uh, yeah, just to have that image as the starting point of the book. And of course, it, it quickly veers off into dangerous territory. But it was a pleasure to start with that. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once, it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, 
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neo Denny. Today I'm talking to Louise Welsh, and we're talking about her latest novel, The Second Cut. And Louise, you just mentioned that the novel starts at a wedding, a, a same-sex wedding. And as you said, you know, when you first wrote The Cutting Room 20 years ago to now, the lives for LGBT plus people have, have changed beyond recognition in just 20 years. I mean, it's pretty amazing to think about. And indeed, as some of the characters think in this book, maybe a little too far into the um, realms of respectability. <laughs> yeah, well, I think, you know, for Rilke, he's happy, of course he is. You know, in the old days, somebody beat you up on the street and you went to the police, they might, you know, well, let's not get carried away and say that it's all, <laughs> that it's all beautiful. But there is uh, recourse to hate laws. There's things that didn't exist in the past. So Rilke is pleased about this on the whole, but yeah, he misses sometimes that frisson, you know, that frisson of danger, uh, which is nice to contemplate when you're not actually in danger. <laughs> and I guess uh, I guess that idea of um, capitalism, you know, that idea of uh, being co-opted by capitalism. And I think uh, for Rilke and for all of us, you know, there's a lot of queer washing that goes on. Um, and I wrote a little essay at the tiny, tiny couple of pages at the back of the book and uh, I was thinking my lovely friend my little cat Minnie uh, we get her these treats these dreamies and during LGBTQ plus history month last year they were they had rainbows on them they were branded <laughs> they I just remember me laugh. yeah because you think really the pussycat's not interested <laughs> in that you know so this idea that sometimes uh, sometimes I see a rainbow flag flying and I think oh good a gay bar for me a new bar in town and then you go along the road and you realize no it's a building society trying to show they're a good ally and get your money trying to get the pink pound <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really funny. But yeah, things are, you know, on the whole, there is an improvement, a big, big improvement uh, in terms of uh, equalities for LGBTQ plus people. And I think that's something to be acknowledged and celebrated, while at the same time, not getting too comfortable, you know. And, you know, I think, uh, I don't know, I just love it that I can walk outside in Glasgow and I will see two women or two men walking along the street holding hands you know I think that that is amazing and uh hopefully it all goes well sometimes no sometimes you're going to have a bad day because someone's going to be really mean to you for doing that but on the whole on the whole it's going to work and I think that's incredible really and it gives me hope for you know other equalities but people need them now you know not in 20 years one of the starters of the plots with, as you said, Jojo going to his parties, taking an Uber to go to a grinder hookup or whatever is like, you know, obviously <laughs> rather a, a a large part of life now. And um and I wanted to talk to you about like how how you dealt with the the sort of changes that have happened to the world, technologically, but just generally to the world over the course of, you know, of 20 years. And I'm thinking here in terms of plotting the novel out, because obviously things like, you know, having mobile phones and the internet make a difference to the writing of crime novels. Oh, I love all of that. I love it, you know. And actually the mobile phone was there. And, the you know, when I was writing the first book, mm. not the smartphone, but we had... Uh, we did have mobiles. I think it's great. You know, I think it's really, these things are uh, aids to plot, I think. And they're, they're 
anchors in the real world and they're things that will date our plots you know in 20 years time there may be something else you know people might not be using their phones in these ways but I, I love all that technology and um, I'm trying to think Oh, what was the first use of the telegram within the crime novel? Is it Conan Doyle that uses it? I can't remember. Somebody, someone who listens to the podcast will be saying, oh, yeah, you, I'm trying to think whether, uh, whether Sherlock Holmes ever receives a telegram. I can't remember. <laughs> Probably in the later ones, because they the do go into the thing. 20th century. Yeah. But, you know, the, the crime novel, this kind of book, it's set in the period in which it's written. And therefore, it's rather important to reflect the world as it is you know and that's uh that's something that I love about the crime genre that sometimes we tra- we time travel <laughs> back to the 30s or the 20s and 50s you know or even just the 70s I've been reading uh the Martin Beck novels recently and you get a real feeling for that period you know the the fabric of that period so I love I love uh doing all you know these phones people's phones are always ringing uh in the first book people just smoked 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 all the time you know that's really dated now you can't smoke in bars now they're all you know on the e-cigarettes and things the vapes yeah so I think I think the the novelist job is partly the contemporary novelist job is to keep their eyes open and to be aware of these things and to what extent has Glasgow itself changed over the last 20 years massively really massively you know it's, it's funny because of course I'm saying we, we need to be aware of what's happened but uh, that's the other thing when you live within a city of course you're part of that change and some change you know when when a building gets knocked down that's very sudden but other changes are rather gradual aren't they and I, I wrote this book partly during the pandemic so I was writing it with a consciousness of that and writing it with the consciousness that I wanted it to be um to take place post-pandemic you know and to think about those uh, unfortunate economic things that have happened, you know, the businesses that have really, you know, has been really, really hard on. So those gaps in the high street, those businesses that have gone. But Glasgow has changed. Uh, I don't know. It's all, in some ways it's changed, in some ways it hasn't. Glasgow's always been a, a performance city. I think it's a city where people have a, an idea of dressing up. You know, but but then again, but that's not enough to say. That's not enough distinction, is it? Because people in Newcastle and Manchester and London also have that. There's some very shiny bars, <laughs> very very shiny bars. I think our population has become more diverse, which is a good thing. Um, some of the places that Rilke would have gone in the past, and he he mentions this uh, at one point. Things like Paddy's Market, which was a great place. I'd been there for. Oh, gosh, I don't know, 100 years or so, uh, which was just a, a market where people sold things on the street. That's gone. The Barras uh, market where Roka would have gone is still going, but rather changed a little bit more shishi. Uh, so there are places that back 20 years ago would have been a bit run down. You know, the streets where I used to stay over at Finiston. They're now, you know, they're they're in restaurant reviews and things. There's uh, Michelin restaurants and so forth here, which we didn't, I think, have before. Yeah, so th- th- there are some changes. And yet uh, one of the things Rilke says is things change, things stay the same. Um, I guess the other big change, which is in, you know, happening across uh, Britain to an extent, is an increased consciousness of colonialism and empire and... Uh, how the city was built on that, you know, 
Um, so yeah, all sorts of things going on. And just one more thing, and then I'll, I'll ask you to, to read a bit for us if you would. Are we likely to see Roka again? And will I be 70 when we do? <laughs> I hope, well, no. Uh, I don't know is the answer. <laughs> I've got another book that I'd like to write, and I've got a book that I'm just finishing, and neither of them have Roka in them. But, you know, I enjoyed there it so much. There will be a few much. years. Yeah, I enjoyed it so, so much. And I think three's a really nice number, isn't it? Three's mm. a really strong structure. So, so I would never say never. And I'd always, you know, when I thought about this previously, I'd always liked the Patricia Highsmith model. And I think, and I might be wrong, but I think she went back every 10 years. And I think I screwed it up. I should have gone back. Well, you just do it when you feel it, don't you? So yeah, if I if I felt it, then I would do it. And I think, you know, that's where we started really, wasn't it? You have to, you have to have it in your heart not just your head. So, yeah, but I enjoyed hanging out with him and I enjoyed, uh, it felt like a bit of a party at times. And I do like okay. a party. <laughs> <laughs> Can I get you to read us a bit then? Okay, so this is the voice of Rilke. Um, I've morphed from a, a wee woman into a big, tall, thin man. Some things change, some things never change. The grooms were about to cut the cake when I caught sight of Jojo, Lurching through the wedding guests, a bashed-up puppet on badly mended strings, head nodding, knees loose. I raised my third glass of fizz to my lips and kept my eyes on the grooms, hoping Jojo would take the hint and piss off. But there was no escaping Jojo. He waved a hand and made a beeline for me, with an urgency that suggested the streets beyond the Glasgow Art Club were teeming with military insurgents or zombies on a spree. Jojo was out of breath and wheezing whiskey by the time he got to my side. He put a hand on my shoulder. Christ, there should be a limit on how many tartans are allowed in one room. The two bobbies had gone for a traditional theme. The art club looked like a boozy gathering of clan prodigals made good, an oversweet whiskey liqueur advert of plaid and heather, gillybrokes and fluffed-up sporans. Bobby McAndrew had gone full Bonnie Prince Charlie with a lace jabot and cuffs. Bobby Burns had settled on a bow tie and the same tartan as his kilt. I was in no position to judge. The Bobbies had been good to me. I was showing my respect by wearing a Harris tweed jacket and black watch trues. I whispered, glad to see you're doing your bit for sobriety. Jojo was a tartan-free zone. He was wearing a rumpled black suit over a white shirt. His funeral tie was loosely knotted around his neck. It might have been part of a reservoir dog style decision or the only tie he could find. Or maybe it was his own funeral Jojo was anticipating. His skin was grey, the bags under his eyes a blue-black cascade. Jojo propped himself against the wall, sending a, an oil painting skew whiff. The naked woman in the picture had been admiring herself in a handheld mirror when somebody, the painter presumably, had interrupted her. She had half turned to face the intruder, revealing the full stretch of her bare back. The painter had paid special attention to her spine, the ridge of vertebrae beneath her skin that led down to a hint of cleft. The painting invited you to imagine what happened next. Jojo turned to see what he was leaning against and snorted, bare arsed in an expression like butter wouldn't melt. 
The Bobbies had already given speeches testifying their love for each other. Now they were fiddling with the two plastic grooms from the top of the cake, amusing their guests by casting aspersions on the white fondant icing. There are no parents of the grooms in attendance. Bobby McAndrew's wee mammy, as he had always called her, had passed away six months before, and Bobby Burns's relatives fell into the never-to-be-mentioned category. Bobby McAndrew gave me a stern look, and I nodded, trying to convey that I would keep Jojo in order. Bobby Burns put an arm around his new husband and called the assembled guests his chosen family. Equal weddings, surrogates, gay community, queer allies, trans rights, drag queens spilling the tea on primetime TV. The world changes. The world stays the same. So I've been talking to Louise Welsh. We've been talking about her latest novel, The Second Cut, which is out now from Canongate. Louise, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with us. It was a total pleasure. Thank you for inviting me on. And if I write a third one, please have me back. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening.